Listen to one note at a time Let go of the one that was before Imagine where the melody might wander We don't want Hi, my name is Shruti Raghuraman. Uh, welcome to the Pandemic and Beyond podcast. Uh, Pandemic and Beyond is an arts and humanities funded research project at the University of Exeter. In the podcast series, we talk to researchers whose work has transformed lives during the COVID-19 pandemic and has shown us ways in which an extremely testing and challenging time was equally able to drive novel innovations or to facilitate recovery, well-being and a better quality of life for all of us. Today, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with Professor Dee Hedden, who holds the James Arnott Chair in Drama at the University of Glasgow. For the past decade, Dee has had an interest in walking and creativity and is the co-founder of an ongoing creative research project called The Walking Library, which is a COVID-19 rapid response project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. This project explores the potential of the arts to sustain, encourage, and more equitably support walking during the pandemic and while recovering from it. Walking Publics, Walking Arts also commissions walking artworks across a range of themes and formats to address the project aims. And to tell us more about this, we're very pleased to also welcome two of these project partners, Dr. Kate Crean and Mr. Maxwell Ayamba, who will lead us through their commissioned walking artworks developed in collaboration with the Walking Publics and Walking Arts project. So thank you all for being here. To start with Dee, can you tell us a little more about the Walking Publics, Walking Arts project and also a little bit about what motivated you to design this project. Yes, of course. So I am a walker. You know, walking is something that I try and do daily. I recognise that walking is really vital to my mental and physical well-being and health. And this funding opportunity by the Arts and Humanities Research Council prompted me to think a bit more about how I'd walked during the pandemic and what walking had meant to me. And I'm very lucky that I'm connected to um, some great scholars and artists who themselves use walking as a creative resource. Uh, so the research team includes Claire Qualman from the University of East London, Dr Morag Rose from the University of Liverpool, Dr Harry Wilson from the University of Glasgow, and Professor Maggie O'Neill, who's a sociologist at University College Cork. Um, and Maggie's done an amazing amount of work thinking about walking as a research methodology. And I already knew from some of the surveys that were published very quickly, really, some of it commissioned by the government, that indeed walking had increased. So very early on, I think the statistics were saying 55% of people were walking more in that first phase of the pandemic lockdown. Um, but what the data wasn't really showing was how folk felt about that and what lay behind those statistics of health and well-being. And did it change over the duration of the lockdown? Because I think in the first initial lockdown, there was a sort of anxiety, uncertainty, as I say, you know, mandate to get out and do a walk. But then maybe that shifted into feelings of, oh, God, it's the same walk every day. I don't want an hour-long walk. I want to get out into the Pennine Hills or the Highlands of Scotland. You know, everywhere I walk, it's very busy. Is that safe? Actually, I don't feel very safe walking because I'm concerned about catching COVID because um, it was quite hard to stay two metres apart when you live in an urban city centre. My outdoor space is public parks. The parks were mobbed. So it didn't come without its challenges, this whole sort of movement, walking movement, I guess. Um, and by walking, we also don't just mean walking on two feet, Shruti. Like we do think about walking in wheelchairs and with other mobility. Um, walking is not equitable. It's not an equitable practice. 
it was already apparent, but like so many things in the pandemic, it's been magnified. And so the project was prompted in part by thinking, well, what can we find out about how people feel about walking during this time? And for folk who maybe walked in different ways before, in different places, how do they feel about being restricted to local, hyper-local areas? Or folk who perhaps had never really walked before, how did they feel about walking now? And is this something they might continue to do? What were the emotions attached to that? How did they feel about their environments? Did everyone feel welcome to walk? Did folk feel unwelcomed, made to feel out of place, perhaps? that this wasn't a space for them. So there was a lot of sort of rich qualitative data. And then the other really important strand, Shruti, I guess, was that walking as a subject of research really, you know, cuts across social sciences, you know, arts and well-being, medicine. Um, but I'm coming at it really from an arts perspective uh, with a long commitment myself to thinking about creative walking arts practices. There are a lot of artists across and beyond the UK who use walking as their primary material. So I was also interested in thinking around how did they have to adapt their practices in these new conditions of restriction? And I don't know about you, Shruti, whether uh, during this time, and Maxwell and Kate, whether when you were walking, you encountered artworks that might have been placed there, um, you know, painted stones with messages on them or rainbow trails put in windows. Um, you know, these are not, you know, singularly creative artists' works, but they're creative works made by whoever in the community. And I certainly know that when I felt really isolated because my whole social environment had changed during the pandemic, that sense of someone communicating to me or creating something for me to encounter and engage with, it really lifted my step, it really lifted me. And I felt that, gosh, you know, this is one of the things that art can do. It can still communicate, it can still engage. You can still participate in it, in some senses, emotionally and virtually, even if you're not in a room with people anymore. And so the project was a combination then, really, of going, how are folk experiencing walking beyond the data that they're doing more of it? And how do they encounter and engage in creative acts while walking? And what impact does that have? And how do artists themselves use walking in those times that might be different before those times or change during those times? It's a very rich process. Project. And I love how you talked about making your daily walk more interesting. Sometimes, even though I'm very lucky to live in a very nice part of the country in the Southwest, I find that my daily walks can get boring. But because I'm a walker, I think I can learn so much from the work that you're doing. Speaking of which, I just wanted to get an understanding of who do you think benefits really from the findings and the outputs from creative walking methodologies and research such as yours? I think in the in conception of the project, we were thinking really of two particular sectors, for want of a better word, and one is the walking organisation sector. So ramblers, living streets, um, you know, Sheffield Environmental Movement, uh, Paths for All, these are walking organisations. Um, and they all have different demographics, actually. And some of the demographics in those organisations are very white and very able-bodied. So one of the things we were wondering and thinking about was, well, might creative walking be a way to broaden that demographic? So that's one. And the second is cultural organisations, which during the pandemic had to shut down because their activity takes place indoors. And actually, the great thing about walking is it happens mostly out of doors, not singularly, but mostly out of doors. And so I think we're trying to say to the cultural organisations, could you think about creative walking as an arts practice and a model of community engagement that will allow you to continue to engage with publics, to encounter and participate in arts practices through the you know, model of walking 
And might that actually also serve to broaden your demographic as who, of who comes to your work? Um, I hope it will be of value to people supporting um, health and well-being. One of the things that we're doing in the project is creating a free open resource toolkit that's called the Walkbook Recipes for Walking and Well-Being. And that's going to be comprised of about 30 recipes by artists that are intended to support folk to get out and be a bit creative and have fun, you know, and pleasure in walking beyond simply going, I need to do 10,000 steps for my health. And we're really hoping that our partners will put it through their networks, but that also perhaps it will reach GPs and doctors and healthcare supporters and community workers and participatory engagement, you know, officers, uh, you know, thinking about, well, here's a resource that I can now have the confidence of sharing with people to support them to go out and do some creative activities. And also importantly, not everyone can walk outside. You think about shielding. So what's lovely in this toolkit is there is walking that's imaginative. So you don't actually literally go out your house, but you might remember your favourite walk and you might spend time just drawing that and let those memories support you to feel better or to feel connected to your environment virtually. Let's bring Kate and Maxwell into the conversation because you've just touched upon all the support that you provide to organisations that then take and implement the creative walking methodology to make walking more inclusive and more enjoyable to everyone. So let's start with Kate. Okay, well, I think I'll start by telling you a little bit about my practice pre-pandemic, because this is listening to Dee, it's about how things have changed for all of us. So I did a project called Mind Walks, which was walking collaboratively with a friend of mine, Professor Anthony Collier, and lived with motor neurone disease. And at the stage we were working together, he was on a ventilator. He was able to speak quietly and he was able to move his eyes. And that was how we communicated. Now, what Ant would do would be tell me a walk that he did in his mind. So it might have been a memory of a walk, but we wanted to make clear that he was walking that memory now. And that's what the interesting thing about remembering is. When you remember something, you're actually remembering it in the present. I would then go to that physical place. And this was pre-Zoom, okay? So I would just take a camera and I would record. And then I would come back and show Ant the recordings of the physical place that he was talking about, which of course wasn't the same as the place he'd walked. And he would then write poetry and words and we would edit together. And then when the lockdown came along, I felt like Dee said, everything went hyper-local. And you weren't able to really stretch your wings like you used to be able to with your walking. So I did a lot of small projects. I was already working on a project with the Lempster Meeting Centre to do with walking with people dementia. And I'd done a few experimental talks and walks and singing, talking walks when the commission call came from Walk Create. And this has been an amazing opportunity for me to extend that project. At the point that I got this commission, we had just come up with the concept of Zoom walks. And when the meeting centres stopped being able to meet in person and people living with dementia and their friends and families couldn't actually physically go to the meeting centre anymore, they were introduced to Zoom. I am now asking them to send me a Zoom link from their room and I pick that up on my phone when I'm out and about. So then they can see what I can see because I put my camera so it's front facing, have it on a sort of selfie stick and hold it up ahead of me. And so the people 
in the meeting center can see what I can see. I then have a sort of call center headset with microphone on as well, and they tell me where they want me to go, which is great fun. And they are very naughty and they tell me to do really silly things like go on the swings in the park, go on the slide, go into shops, talk to people. I also have a ukulele with me and a sort of a book of songs. So if we get to a river, I sing a song about a river. Uh, if I go in a shop, we might sing a song about the shop and they can hear me singing and I can hear them joining in. So when I say, and I think in the bio, it says I'm exploring non-linear pathways, that sounds a bit dry and academic. We are finding different ways to walk. And what's really important to me is that there are so many negative connotations with dementia, particularly in terms of getting lost or wandering. But if we look at it a different way, wandering can be wonderful. I'm not making the the issue of wandering into a, a smaller thing than it is. It, it, it can be really distressing. And there's one thing to be lost in a landscape. It's another thing to be lost in your head. But with the right support and kindness, I think there's a different way to find a way together. And, and that's what my project's trying to do. Oh, that's that's lovely. I like the idea of safe and supported wandering because you're completely right. What in academic terms is non-linear walking is completely vilified. And it's so in line with what Dee was saying about making walking inclusive for everyone. These are groups of people that get forgotten and left behind. So thanks, Kate. I'd love to introduce Maxwell to join in the conversation and share with us about the project that you've been commissioned through the Walking Public's Walking Arts Project and tell us a little bit about what may have motivated you to design this project and where you think it's going. Thanks, Ruti. First of all, um, I just want to formally introduce myself. I'm Maxwell Ayamba. I'm an environmental journalist and ecocentrist and a PhD researcher in Black Studies at the University of Nottingham. Um, look at the trajectory of race, ecology, and environmental justice in the UK. In addition, I'm the founder and director of a project called Sheffield Environmental Movement. Basically, Sheffield Environmental Movement has been in existence since 2016, and we've been organizing walks and other kinds of activities for environmental groups and community groups. One of our famous walking projects or flagships is called the 100 Black Men Walk for Health, which was the first black walking group in England, which led to the production of the national play Black Men Walking. But then what makes the Walking Public's project quite innovative is the fact that it's not only walking. So we came up with this whole project idea to make it relevant to the people we want them to walk. So we have been working to investigate the impact of air pollution in their local communities. And we felt this was important and relevant because minoritized communities tend to live in very polluted environments or zones. And air pollution is one of the biggest issues that affect the health and well-being of people in those communities. I think um, Kate said something which was quite important here about dementia. In fact, air pollution is now linked to Alzheimer's, dementia, ADH, diabetes, all kinds of diseases. And because air is insidious, people don't know what kind of damage it was doing to their lungs and those kind of things. And not until COVID came, people weren't wearing masks at all. People just walked literally everywhere without knowing how much amount of air they breathed in. In fact, over a thousand people die every year in Sheffield due to air pollution. And so we tend to think it's COVID is the killer, but no, there's something more deadlier there. But how can you tell people that the air they are breathing in is poisonous or is polluted. 
how can you demonstrate that? So we came up with this idea of using the OPAL, which is the Open Air Laboratories Explore Nature Project, to do a presentation about the impact of air pollution to the home body. And the, the participants, they were telling us number of families and friends who have got asthma and other cardiovascular diseases. And so the working public's project, we found very interesting because most of the communities we work in are completely alienated because much of the language used is quite scientific. So we came out with this OPAL project where basically using natural indicators, which can demonstrate to you physically and practically that the area is safely polluted. So we came out with things like natural indicators, like lichens and the Zantora lichen, which if you want to Google, you could see where it thrives, then there's a lot of air pollution there, especially carbon dioxide. And then also black tar spots on sycamore tree leaves, where, which is a fungi, where it doesn't thrive, it means the, the air is heavily polluted. So we felt that these were good natural indicators to use to engage with these groups and to, to take them out to walk. But we also felt we have to provide the service of an artist, right? And so Jensen Grant is now going to work with them to allowing them to voice themselves what they think about these environments and then giving them tools. So we'll give them cameras, digital cameras to capture visually what they see you know, create an opportunity for the participants themselves to co-produce that knowledge through building skills and expertise of understanding their local environment, like I, I explained earlier, as a form of empowerment. Because it's one thing taking them out, the other thing, how do you empower them? And they got so excited. And then we also believe that the project will enhance cultural participation, delivering cultural knowledge in the design of a participatory working map. Because we, we sometimes, when we work in community groups, we don't work with them, we rather try to do things for them. So basically what we want to do is we want them to be part of that pro the co-production of the knowledge so they take ownership of that process. So that then they can then pass on the knowledge to their families and friends and they, they can then lobby the council to raise awareness. So when the project ends, it's, it becomes sustainable. And the reason why we are saying this is just going back to what Dee spoke earlier about the production of space. If you have read Unreal of Fred, the French theorist about who's written about the social production of space, he says spaces are contested. Right. Some species are welcoming, others are not welcoming. And we feel that by making spaces welcoming and understanding, then the people living in those spaces can have that kind of sense of belonging. And the only way you can do it is by empowering them to understand the relevance of those spaces to them, to their life, their health and well-being. And above all, the government has also come up with this green social prescribing initiative where people are now going to, to, to do green activities. But if you are telling communities that are used to prescriptive medication to cut away from that and then go and do walking as a, an alternative way of a treatment, how are they going to take that? They won't understand that. You know, they know I'm having a headache. I have to go to a hospital doctor and the doctor prescribe paracetamol or whatever it is. So when you go and the doctor refuses to prescribe paracetamol or whatever or antidepressants and tell them to go and walk, they will just think that they are not taking my health seriously. But we know that antidepressants and prescriptive medication have got serious side effects and they don't solve the problem. And so basically we have to use our natural world, natural environment to transform societies and give people the health and well-being opportunities that they lack. Because of that kind of cultural severance, where people have been disconnected or detached from their local environments and living in environment where it's so urbanized, you know, and they haven't got that knowledge about even their own local environment. Because those spaces we talk about, some of them, there are no safe spaces. The parks are not safe, you know, and then even going into the wider countryside can be challenging because if you are not comfortable with your own local green space, you wouldn't want to venture into the outer space. 
Well, that's fantastic. And so much of what you say resonates with me because obviously I'm an immigrant to this country and as a woman as well, I feel like some spaces are not safe. So I can only imagine how much of an impact this would make to people who feel like those spaces are not available to them and not accessible to them. Maxwell, could you mention the, the name of the organization that you're working with? I know you've, you've talked around it, but you're supporting women as part of an organization. What's the name of the organization? It's called Roshni, Southeast Asian Women Community mm-hmm. Center. Um, we work with mostly women from Pakistan, Bangladesh, India. These women are women who are considered vulnerable. They are very socioeconomically deprived, and they need that kind of um, what we call um, the funds of knowledge in the social and cultural capital to be able to navigate the system. And the important is Russia cannot provide the kind of environmental services that we are providing, but we can also reach the community group because we don't have access to them. So it's that partnership working together. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Maxwell. And Dee, I mean, I really want to find out from you what the legacy of the Walking Public's Walking Arts Project is. And, and I think that's a nice way to round off the podcast as well, to just tell me where you think this is going and, and how what you think the legacy is. Yeah, thanks for that. It was so brilliant to hear from Kate and Maxwell about how the projects are going. And we're, we're just so grateful to the partners and artists. If nothing else, I think it shows the diversity of what creative walking could be and who it could engage with and what things it might shift culturally and socially, actually. So it doesn't stop with the walking. I think the walking is a gateway to all of these different challenges that collectively we are facing um, across multiple cultures. So the question of the legacy of this, um, I don't know when this podcast is going out, but just to say we do have a project sharing um, on the 18th and 19th of May where we are going to share the findings from our research And at the same time, we're going to be publishing that report on the large public survey. And we're hoping that that will perhaps inform some policy thinking just around the importance of walking to people, both in the context of a pandemic, because who knows where we're going with that, but also beyond that, the folk have found walking. So how can we continue to support them to continue to walk? And that becomes so important in an environmental context in relation to active travel. But we've also found things like the fact that you weren't allowed to sit on a bench during mm-hmm. lockdown in the first stage. That's actually inequitable. People who are elderly or have disabilities, they need to be able to rest. And so folk didn't go out walking because they couldn't pause. That's not good enough. So in future contexts of restrictions, thought needs to be given to how can you enable walking which we know and has proven to be so important to health and well-being. How can you support everyone to access that equitably? Toilets being locked. Again, an issue of access. You know, folk need to be able to access public services. So surely there's a way to balance the risk or they simply will not go out. I think the Scottish government did quite a good job of using social media to present very simple messages that said, go out for a walk. And that could be more nuanced. It could be, go out for a walk to talk to your family about difficult things. Go out for a walk with your social bubble and talk to them about how they're feeling. I think that's come through. Walking became a safe space to have very difficult conversations with close family members. Because as we know, when we walk, we're looking ahead. It's non-confrontational. It's not face-to-face. It's looking at the environment and allowing that to dilute some very challenging conversations, I think. We also found out that 
walking became a fantastic resource for parents to engage their children. And so more work around how can we support carers and you know parents to be able to take their children out for walks and how can those be joyful and pleasurable rather than a chore um, and that that provides then some support and continuity and space of well-being for young people who were so de devastated through the context of restrictions in COVID. Um, so I think there are really pragmatic lessons that we can share and take forward out of the research and then through the artworks that we're commissioning. So we've heard from two, Kate and Maxwell today, there are another six commissioned artworks, all engaging with different types of partnerships and different types of communities. So I think the other legacy is how can we share from the work of our partners and our artists models for widening access and mitigating inequity to walking? And how can we think about walking as that gateway into all sorts of other societal challenges actually? With the artist at the heart of that, I'm really an advocate for the value of arts to health and well-being, uh, the value of arts to knowledge co-creation, as Maxwell's talked about. This project has a gallery, a digital gallery, filled with more than 100 pieces of art made by walking artists. And they are so beautiful and diverse in their materials. Some of them are audio walks, some of them are films, some of them are photographs, some of them are paintings, some of them are sculptures. And just going into that gallery and seeing just the remarkable creativity of artists during a very difficult period, simply using walking as their material. Thank you, Dee. I, we'd love to include the link for your digital gallery in the description so that it's more accessible to everyone. I want to take this opportunity to thank you all so much for sharing your passion for art and creativity and walking with me. It's made me reimagine what a walk can mean. And I've come to understand that the walk is not just stimulating for my dog on my dog walk, but it can be stimulating for me and it can make me think of the world in a, in a new and imaginative way. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. Our podcast editor today is Olivia Rees and the music framing our podcast today is by our guest, Dr. Kate Crane. To get updates on the project, find out more about the latest research and to access other episodes of the series, you can find everything you need on our website pandemicandbeyond.exeter.ac.uk or you can also follow us on Twitter at Pandemic Beyond.